0: After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two in every town and place where he was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to come here together and to have our gaze turned back to you. Uh, God, in the midst of the day-to-day and all that our life uh, demands of us, uh, it is easy to have our our vision blurred and our our gaze turned to other things. And so we just ask on on this day that you might turn us back, that you might uh, cause us, lead us, empower us to seek you with our whole hearts, uh, that we might know true joy and that we might express such and be a testament of true joy to the world and where you've placed us. I pray that you might do your work in us through your word this morning. I ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. In our text today, Jesus had just got done sharing the cost with his disciples. At the end of chapter 9, he tells them, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say, well, say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus is ultimately painting a picture, helping the disciples to understand that The mission that he has called us to when flowing from a love for him is to encompass all of our lives and be ahead of everything. That my love for Jesus, my commitment to him, in light of that, everything else is to pale in comparison. That if I can can idolize anything, I can idolize my job, but I can also idolize those things we wouldn't think we could idolize. My home, my children, my own wife, anything that I put before Jesus that hinders me or becomes my reason for failing in obedience to what he has called me to, I... uh, I am in sin and I have to repent and acknowledge as much. And so after giving this strong word to the disciples, he then sh- he sends them out. And the scripture tells us some versions say he sent out 70, other original transcripts say 72. And so he sends out his 72, and one of the first things that you notice is whether that number is 70 or 72, it's a much larger number than we typically think of when we think of the disciples of Jesus. We tend to When we think of disciples, we think of the 12 disciples, but while those 12 disciples were set aside for a specific purpose, there were many more who faithfully followed Jesus, but they were unnamed and unrecognized and unknown in history. And so from the get-go, there's an important reminder to us and encouragement that it is a beautiful, sacred, holy thing to live a life where we are not known in the depths of history, where we are not known by others, but are known by the Lord for our faithfulness. And surely the 72 represent that, which would be where the majority of us will fall into. For the believer being known by the Father is more than enough. And he sends out the 72, and it says... They went into every town and every place. They went into the towns, and they went into the places that wouldn't even qualify as a town, and it's just a place. Like some of you are probably, maybe you went to high school in what seemed more like a place than a town, but they went to urban areas and rural areas. They filled the region, and it says they went ahead of him where he was about to go. I want you to take a moment and notice the significance of where He is sending them because their purpose is revealed in this statement. He sends them to every town and place where he himself was about to go. So these 72 are meant to to fill the crevices of society, to go into these places testifying of who the Lord is, but they are going to places where he's about to follow them. As those who are called to make disciples... We can have courage and confidence as we go because we know that we are going to prepare the way for where he is about to come after us. That ultimately, when we enter into discipleship, we often can feel like maybe we have very little to bring. Perhaps I I question my giftings, perhaps I I feel that I, I... I feel that I can do little to actually change a person or to convince someone of what scripture says. I can feel that I'm lacking, but I can have confidence and courage nonetheless because I am simply setting the tone, paving the way for the work that Christ ultimately does. That I can't change anybody. I can't cause somebody to see that which is true. I can't open the blind man's eyes so that he might see the gospel, but ultimately the Lord does that work. But he invites me, he uses me, uses us as a vessel through which his good news is proclaimed and then he, by the power of his spirit, does that work. And so the disciples were able to go with boldness because they knew that ultimately they were entering into the places where Jesus himself was coming. And in verse two, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers and to his field. He compares the climate to these disciples to a field that is overflowing with harvest, yet is untouched. And in a in a world where agriculture was the primary industry, this would have been would have struck home in a very powerful way. Who would leave a harvest field untouched? That would be equivalent to there being a a field full of money lying around and us just walking by and not touching it. Nobody would do that. That would be unfathomable. Yet Jesus is t- is telling them that's exactly the place that they live. There are many who the Lord desires, who the Lord is seeking, who have not heard the good news. And many walk by and and just absolutely walk by that like a farmer walking by a field ready to pluck. And so Jesus is wanting them to understand the urgency of this as he sends them out two by two, that they're not called to just go into this alone, but ultimately there's value in communal mission. And he tells he he gives them what our response should be he tells them to pray earnestly that the lord of the harvest the lord who ultimately is in control of who is is the one who has providentially planted the field pray that he might raise up and send workers for the harvest that he might not only raise up us that we can uh, we, like we can make evangelism, mission, discipleship like we do other things and just must try to, try to muster it up continuously till we have nothing left. But that's the reason that we started with the end of 10 first last week because we see that that kind of service is, is void. But ultimately, as the Lord is working in us, transforming us, he's raising up workers for the harvest. And Mary's posture as the one that sat at Christ's feet last week is the posture necessary to ultimately be able to be raised up and work like Martha in a way that reflects the glory of the Lord. We pray that the Lord might raise us up and that He might send others. That the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is bigger than we alone can go into. And so we pray that the Lord might send workers to other places that new churches might be planted, that people that maybe know, know the glory of God to the ends of the earth. So many things seem urgent in our lives, but often that leads us to grow apathetic to the harvest, that we live in a place here and now where the harvest is plentiful, and the workers are growing fewer all the time. We've we walk by the harvest each day, and it's, our hearts can grow cold to this reality as other things in our life begin to take precedence and require so much of us. But it's in the midst of those day-to-day things that we have the opportunity to also to model faithfulness as the ones who are ultimately being built up and strengthened by the power of the gospel. We must remember that we are no less called than the 72 to go into the field. And he is no less faithful today. In verse 3, he says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He's letting the 72 know where they're about to enter into, that he is calling them to go and be a countercultural people. In the midst of a people who are hell bent on devouring one another, they are to go humbly, reflecting Christ in all they do. We walk humbly and confidently into discipleship relationships because we trust in the shepherd. Because we can walk in to the midst of the wolves knowing that our salvation, our life, is secure in Christ. And that's why like, I don't go worried about what will happen to my reputation, worried about what will happen to my friendships, my relationship, my career. I've been given everything in Christ. I'm an heir to the throne of grace. We can walk into the world as a countercultural people willing to speak the truth in all seasons because of Christ. And when we walk in such a spirit, we walk reflecting Christ, who was a lamb amongst wolves himself. That what Christ is calling them to is to model himself. That we are to be a people who the value, one of the key values of scripture and time in God's word is we learn more about who Christ is and thus who we are called to be. And when we read God's Word, even if it feels like it was a labor, even if it feels like I got nothing from it, make no mistake, His Word is powerful, and it is helping us to become more and more like Him. And then in verse 4, He gives them some specific, peculiar instructions. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road, essentially, his call to the seventy-two is to not be distracted by things. Leave those things behind. He wants to paint a bold picture here. Don't be distracted by money or knapsack or what you wear. All of these earthly things that require so much of your attention. I can't help but if he was calling today, he would say, "You leave behind your phone and your, you know, your bills. Like leave all these. Go. Like just put everything else to the side." and focus singularly on what I have called you to. Our focus as God's people is to testify of that which is eternal, yet our lives are often just filled with and focused fully on things that are temporary. Our motivation, our moments of joy and happiness, the things that we daydream about are so often temporary things. But we have been called to testify of eternal things. And he goes as far, and this is where uh, things get a little, even maybe more peculiar here. He then goes as far as to instruct them not to greet people with this message, the gospel of peace on the way. And this is a very peculiar, but I want, this is where I want to camp out for the rest of our time today. He tells them, go your way, I'm you. Sin- carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. I believe that Christ's instruction to these 72 is still relevant for us here today. His word to them is to make disciples in the context of real, authentic, and vulnerable relationships. He tells them, greet no one on the road, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Jesus is painting for them a picture that is something different than just a bullhorn on a sidewalk. He's encouraging them towards relational discipleship. Discipleship that models his discipleship. As he, didn't, he didn't just come proclaiming the good news, that certainly was true and there's power in that. But Jesus invested in the lives of these people he sat with them around the table. He sat in their homes. He knew them well, and it took time. And even, even those whom Jesus discipled, some couldn't, could, ultimately wouldn't turn to him. And for others, it was a, a just years of struggle and slow growth. And that's with Jesus discipling them. What should we expect but a life of toiling the soil if we are to be those who make disciples? What's scary about disciple making is that it's not you know if you if you if you're working on your car if that's your thing I know that's some people's thing in our church there's this great like joy that comes and if I follow these steps and I do this right I get immediate satisfaction like I put this carburetor back together I cleaned it and now my vehicle runs good and that's great And we're drawn to those kind of things, but we're part of that is because discipleship is nothing like that. All of us will die with immaturities that we still struggle with and areas of growth that we never fully came, that we never fully grew in. And for those of us who seek to make disciples, we're making disciples amongst messy people who what they need is gospel, safety, and time. Because the process of sanctification takes all of our lives And so Jesus is encouraging discipleship takes place in the midst of real, authentic relationships. The gospel spreads best on the tracks of relationship. This is the design of God. We are made to be in relationships, and that is the context in which God changes people. Neil Cole wrote a book once, and it's entitled Church is a Movement. And he makes a helpful analogy that I think helps us to put this in perspective. He he says this, for a locomotive to work, you need three components. You need the locomotive itself. And then you need tracks for the locomotive to run on. And then you need the energy that makes it move. Those are the three things you need for a locomotive to do what it is supposed to do. In a similar way, we need three parts to see to be part of a discipleship movement. We need the message of the gospel, which is the, the, is the locomotive. We need a right understanding of the gospel that we proclaim boldly and that is infiltrating everything that we do. We need the gospel, but then we need connective relationships with hurting people who need that message. How does the gospel get to where it needs to go? And that's, that's the track, is the relationships with hurting people that need the gospel. Our relationship with, with relationships with people. And that's both with one another and inside the church discipleship relationships and outside the church with lost relationships. Our relationships are the track on which the, how the gospel gets to where the Lord intends it to go. But then thirdly, We need lives that have personally have been and are continually being changed by the transforming power of the gospel. This is the energy that moves the train forward. And all too often, when we feel like discipleship has grown stagnant, whether individually or in our church, it's because we're lacking one or more of these elements. We may believe the truth of the gospel, that it is salvation in Christ through faith alone. But when we act as though it's based on our own efforts, it's based on what we can accomplish or our good works, then we have something that is fully less than a locomotive. It's some, a different version. It's something different. If we're only moral people, We're cultural Christians. We do what is right and good and true vibrant rather than true, vibrant carriers of the gospel. If we're simply living lives of trying to be moral but not Mary being at the feet of Jesus, being transformed by Him, then apathy is is not going to be sufficient fuel to move the train forward. And as a church that desires to make disciples, the middle element is also critical. Most Christians have good relationships with other Christians, but we don't have strong connections with those who need the gospel the most. We have no tracks for the movement to run forward on. And a train that is running at full steam with no track to run on isn't really doing a whole lot. So Jesus is telling these disciples, these are a people who have heard the good news, and they're being changed by the good news. But now Jesus is seeking to point them to the tracks on which that good news is intended to go to the ends of the earth. And again, in verse 5 through 7, whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return it to you, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. The term used in the Gospels to describe the kind of relationships being spoken of here is the word oikos, most often translated household. And it's referring to this kind of family relationship. And Jesus is telling those he is sending that we are to go into the household with the gospel and stay there letting the gospel spread from one relationship to another. This is how he instructed the apostles and us to extend the gospel of the kingdom. We're to make disciples who make disciples. Five times in verses 5 through 7, Jesus uses this word, emphasizing the relate, that relationships are the means through which the gospel change takes place. Jesus is calling them and ultimately calling us into a multiplying, life-changing movement of the gospel that starts and spreads with these oikos relationships. I want to take just a few minutes today, as I'm going to do each Sunday this month, to share some of the primary rhythms that we want to facilitate, we want to use to facilitate making disciples through our church as we enter into this fall. I want to share with you a few um, today, uh, just giving you these are all things that we intend to start september 1st and are going to be talking more about in the weeks to come number one we have not we haven't been in our family groups for a little bit uh, since covid started uh, and then in then the summer it's just a really difficult time with so many people gone but come september we're going to enter back into our family groups and we're going to seek to do that responsibly given the context of whatever is happening on that day we'll we'll, we'll be responsible we'll find ways to do that well but we're going to enter back into that rhythm. However, things are going to be slightly different this fall. Number one, we're starting we're going to have three groups, so you probably won't just it won't your group won't look exactly like it did. And our hope is we want each of our three groups to be planning and praying for multiplication even within their very group. And one of the ways the way, ways we would desire for that to happen is we're going to encourage our groups to prayerfully seek and pursue mission together, that we want our groups, like we, we've kind of, our first couple of years, our groups, we've really intended more just to help each other grow as a family, to get close to one another and to kind of build this core family core. But we're going to be transitioning that to begin to pushing one another and helping one another towards mission. Like there's a reason Jesus sent them out two by two. Not only would there be a witness, But evangelism is rarely a solo thing. It's something we're called to do together. We get to do as family. And so our family groups will meet the first and third weeks of each month. And on the first week, we'll encourage just to come together and to pray and to kind of do similarly what we have. But we're going to encourage our groups to really think through and plan accordingly how could that third week be a door to some of our neighbors and people who need to know the truth of the gospel. So maybe maybe first week looks normal, but third week is always in a park or it's a, the backyard barbecue. Maybe the first week, our primary thing we're praying about together is a list of names of some people we want to invite and then we want to experience what we've been given in Christ. And so our groups are going to be a means by which We seek to have intentional relationships that invite us into discipleship with those who don't know Jesus. And so this week, you're going to be getting an email from Alex inviting you. Uh, We're going to ask you to prayerfully consider joining a specific group because... We're really, if, our, if the point of our groups is we want to begin to, to reach a group of people together, we're really trying to make our groups more geographic-based. Um, that's not something we've done in the past. We've made it more off night of the week, but we're really going to try to make our groups based more off folks that have a similar geography. So be looking for that email this week and prayerfully consider what it asks of you. Number two, we're going to be starting DNA groups within our family groups. So DNA groups are groups that are intended to help us discover, nurture, and act on the truths of God's word. So if if within your family group, on the second and fourth week of each month, we'll meet with our DNA groups. And so the second week of each month, the women within one family group will all meet together, just them, on that second week and are going to be walking through a book of the Bible and seeking to help one another not only grow in their knowledge of Scripture, but apply a Scripture to what's going on in our lives. And then on the fourth week, the men within one family group will do the same. And so this is going to give us uh, a group of just about four to five people of the same sex that we can meet with at least once a month. To study God's word and be known and to practice transparency and to have a group of people who know us and are reminding us of the truths of God's word. And this is an avenue not only for us to, to grow and build relationships, but there's gonna be, we're gonna have a DNA, uh, somebody who's kind of leading and facilitating those conversations that's really seeking to disciple those others. And then our prayer is that as we enter the spring, those groups might begin to multiply and others might be equipped with what they need to enter into similar discipleship relationships with other people. And then thirdly, we're going to be beefing up rooted schools. So if you took part in that this summer, this summer we did a trial run, which was really just let's do this and kind of learn how it goes and see what we could do better. So this fall, we're going to be kind of beefing that up and putting some more structure into that. Uh, Brandon's going to talk more about our fall plan for Rooted School next Sunday. Um, But ultimately, we want to provide this platform where a group of people are able to, on their own time, on their own schedule, receive a theological education and then come together on a regular basis to join around the table and talk about what they're learning. These are all a means by which We want to accomplish the mission of making disciples who ultimately make disciples. As we close today, I want to close by sharing this encouragement with you. Making disciples can seem like an overwhelming call for religious professionals, but if we really consider the truths of Scripture, we see that it's really not that at all. I want to share with you just a few words on discipleship that we see from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read this. I don't do this often, but sometimes I think it's helpful. I'm going to read this from the message because I think Eugene Peterson does a great job of commentating what Paul is seeking to teach here in Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday Ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, and you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. I think often as God's people, we need a bit of a theology of the ordinary. That often we we're prone, especially as Americans, to desire big things. We want we want to be the world's best cup of coffee, the biggest sale ever, the new you know like our whole life is compounded with these radical realities, and it leads us to be a people who are naturally never content with anything. We're always looking for the next big thing, and so when discipleship feels mundane, it feels like something's wrong. But the truth is, Scripture points to us. A group of people, a church that's called to seek the welfare of their city, often in the midst of doing ordinary things. That are in the, in the midst of, of, of folding laundry, going to work, doing the dishes, mowing my yard, meeting my neighbor, like all these, the day to day things that we do are to be done with gospel intentionality. And in the repetition of that, we're being reminded and we're growing more and more in our. Our natural posture of finding our hope in the right place, a place that is to come. And that's why that's why we have ordinances. Like God is, there's the growth that takes place when we commit ourselves to the basic things: studying God's word, being at his feet, taking communion, gathering with the saints. Like these no these things are intentional and in that they, they're causing growth, even if it is slowly. Take your everyday, ordinary life and place it before God as an offering. Number two, and then he goes on to say, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. The slow growth of discipleship was not intended to lead us to frustration, but has continued to point us to by the power of the Holy Spirit to aid us in just continuing to fight. That it can be a, it can be a sanctification, it can be a slow grind, and there are certainly seasons where I just I feel frustrated like things haven't happened, things, things aren't going the way I want, and in that moment I'm in a posture where I am, my heart is prepared to go before the Lord and acknowledge who He is, to seek Him while also remembering His faithfulness, embrace what, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. We're not to become so well adjusted to this world that we find our comfort here. Our time here on earth isn't meant to be comfortable. It's not meant to be where we find ultimate satisfaction. There's always intended to be a a discontent with this place for God's people because our hearts were created for another place. And we need scripture to continually remind us that that discontent is my longing for the kingdom. It's not my longing for a new boat. My discontent is my longing to be with Jesus. It's not my longing for a new, more exciting job. We get those things confused. Discontent is is good and well and right. And I need to be continually pointed to what it is that my heart truly desires. But all too often, I take these just temporary things that just get me by for a little bit. Until I traded in two years later because it didn't really work the way I thought it did. He says, readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. We need to be a people that respond like that. God is a good father who has given us things to do because we need them. We don't need new exciting things. No. We need to be together with the saints on Sunday. We need to have discipleship relationships. We need to read our Bible. We need to pray to the Lord. These things are tested and true in what God calls us to. Would we respond to them? Lastly, verse 2, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Costly discipleship is a means through which God is maturing his people. Going through difficulty, going through seasons of struggle, and getting, our, getting back up and continuing to pursue Jesus, continuing to cling to him, repenting, at, like, a repenting of not reading my Bible after a year and a half of not doing it, and fighting to get back on track, is a means through which God is building us up in maturity. Like, it's not not an invitation to just grieve and self-pity. It's an invitation to grow up and mature in Christ. Unlike the culture around you that's always seeking to drag you down to its level of immaturity, God's bringing the best out of you. He's raising you up, developing well-formed maturity in you so that you can help others in the same effort. I would encourage you this week, Romans 12 one and two, to just prayerfully meditate on these verses this week and consider what would this mean for you in the midst of your life right now. I want to uh, just take a moment and I just want to pray together um, as we conclude that we might be a people who, that God might be in the midst of making disciples here in this place and that he might be using all of us collectively to that end. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you that you are abundantly gracious and patient with us. We, we struggle, we fall short, we become distracted. Sometimes, God, we're just rebellious, we're hard-headed, um, all of these things, and yet you're a gracious Father who continues to uh, gently, you, you pick us up, you put us back on your lap, you remind us of who you are, you remind us of the truth, and then you set us down, help our wobbly feet gain steady ground, and you point us back in the direction you had us on. God, I pray, just, just, God, would you, would, you, would you do that in the lives of, of those who need to be picked back up right now? God, point us in the direction that we know you've called us to go. God, would you open our eyes to opportunities to make disciples in our lives? God, both within our body, uh, who are those that we might uh, be able to encourage and and point to you? God, would you prepare our hearts? I, I ask you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, would you bless our DNA groups this fall? God, I, I pray that this would not just be an obligatory something I, I have to do. But I, I'm asking, like, Lord, would you develop real, authentic, transparent, uh, just gospel-centered relationships of people who know each other fully and are helping one another towards gospel maturity? God, would you do that? I know uh, the enemy would have nothing to do with that, and we'll seek to derail that, and we'll seek to to do all sorts of harm, and I pray against that in the name of Jesus. And God, I ask uh, our, our family groups this fall that we might be a people who, who just enjoy and, and celebrate that we have been made family, but who also are so captivated by that truth that we, enjoy, we desire to invite others into it. And God, help us, give us wisdom, uh, lead us away from apathy, and would you just give us a zeal for your word. Lord, I love you. Lord, I, 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 as you asked us to do, Lord, would you raise up workers for the harvest? Lord, we know there are many people in our city, and our neighborhoods that, that, that are yours. They just don't know it yet. And God, would you raise us up? Would you raise us up to go and to pave the way for you? Would you send us to those places to those hearts where you intend to come right behind us and transform people by the power of the gospel. Lord, raise us up, pick us, choose us, use us. Lord, would we lay down whatever we have to lay down to be used by you to that end? Whatever it is that we have to leave behind so that we might go into the harvest and pave the way for you, Lord, and identify it to our hearts you help us use one another, Lord. Might we help others and within our body to identify the thing they need to lay down? And would you use us to go into the field that you might be known throughout this region and that the lost might be found? God, I, I love you. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. At this time in our gathering, uh, as we come to communion time, I just wanna, I want to remind you as we talk about kind of just this, uh, this idea of, of ordinary things leading us to maturity. This morning, as, as the team, as we met um, to, to, to pray for today, I read from Psalm 105, and verses 4 and 5 say this, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. The psalmist is encouraging the people, seek the Lord and his strength. But then he immediately connects seeking with remembering. Seek the Lord and his strength, but remember the wondrous works that he has done. That we seek God as a people who are living just in the midst of his promises fulfilled. This is communion. The Lord tells us, do this in remembrance of me. That Jesus knew that the disciples would just be the one part of a longer story, that there would be many disciples that came after. He knew that we would live here today and that we would need to seek his strength. Everything I've talked about, we we need to, we seek the strength of the Lord. But part of the way that we do that is to remember his works, remember what he has done. Communion is not just an empty void tradition it 's a sacred act that God has put in place, like there is growth to be found in this time of worship, in this worshipful act. We are acknowledging we are remembering what He has done. I seek His strength this week, remembering that his body was broken for me his blood was poured out for me that those who waited centuries lord please come that he did he came that he fulfilled the promise that the promise that the prophets spoke of and David is pleading for was fulfilled in Christ so i seek the lord's strength as one who remembers his promise fulfilled and that he will continually fulfill his promises this morning christian when you're ready I invite you not to, don't come up here passively, like this is no small thing. Prepare your hearts, take a moment and let everything else just be cast aside. Leave your knapsack, leave your money bag and put it all aside and come and remember the works of the Lord. Remember the reason we're here, that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what God said he would do. And that has great implications for you in your life. You can walk out of here today faithfully as a lamb amongst wolves because Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he would do. So Christian, when you're ready, come and partake of the great supper.